0: Hello, and welcome to the program. This is another podcast for The Diplomat. I am Luke Hunt, and with me is Bradley Murg. Uh, Bradley is a uh, Southeast Asian specialist, a quite senior academic, uh, with a wealth of knowledge about China and the region. Bradley, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, change under with COVID, uh, the economies, China's attitude to Southeast Asia, seems to be altering. I'm not too sure how big a shift it actually is. Uh, and in Cambodia, they've certainly left their mark. How do you see the region shaping up in 2021?
1: Well, with regard to the relationship with China, uh, it's been already in January a relatively banner year uh, for uh, for Beijing. Um, Beijing kicked off with the announcement of a new white paper on Chinese aid policy, essentially responding to A significant amount of the critique that we've seen about Mm -hmm. the Belt and Road Initiative over the course of the last two years. Um, A relatively frank paper about the future of that program, the future of Chinese aid in general. Uh, And remarkably, a rather broad set of statements about the enormous amount of investment and time that Beijing will be putting into questions of health. Uh, Covid-19 yeah. is up for competition, uh, and Beijing is is clearly here to play.
0: And that's uh, on the vaccine front. Absolutely, yeah.
1: uh, and even beyond in terms of uh, really prioritizing, uh, building out uh, health facilities, etc. It's uh, Chinese right. aid we think of as infrastructure primarily, uh, and China's really put a put a flag in the ground saying it's not just infrastructure anymore.
0: Yeah, there was some uh, there was some issues with the white paper. Perhaps you can help me to understand a little bit, but. Um, There was uh, one reference to what they're planning to do over the coming year, years, and uh, one of them was to uh, construct 100 happy campuses what is a happy campus, somewhere for the Uyghurs to live? Um, I've got to, I just I really, uh, that one kind of thawed me a little bit. Their choice, it's their language, it's the yeah, way yeah. they couch things. It's, it's, it's,
1: it's, it's a great question, and I think that's also one of the aspects of the paper as a whole, is we see it's it's very long on very broad
0: generalizations uh, and very short on specifics. Well, it kind of reads the, the way they, they used to read 20, 30 years ago, where full of grand language and oh, kind presi- of China out to save the world and everyone else is a victim unless we help them. Uh,
1: precisely, we go in and it begins with the with the usual framing of the of the principles of peaceful coexistence uh, and the, this very lengthy statement of China's deep deep uh, uh, role in South-South cooperation, essentially framing China as the leading state in South-South cooperation, and that this is fundamentally distinct from how aid normally works, that aid normally operates through North-South cooperation, uh, but because Beijing is doing this differently, it it consistently refers to itself, as it's done in the past, but so strongly here as a developing country, Mm -hmm. um, that uh, it seems to continue to believe that it's able to sidestep basic best practice. Right. Uh, on, 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 on how development is done and how foreign aid is, is provided.
0: Right. Um, you know, I was recently down in Sihanoukville and uh, been travelling the country because, well, we can't leave the country. Precisely, so <laughs> precisely. A lot, of, a lot of people are catching up uh, in Cambodia, that is, on um, the uh, going to the ticking boxes and going to those places they hadn't been before. But the Chinese are noticeably absent. Uh, there is virtually no one in um, there was speculation that millions were going to be arriving Uh, late last year, real estate agents have been told they could sell up to 2 million apartments to uh, Chinese people looking to migrate, retire, bring their parents down Uh, embassies are saying that the number of Chinese heading this way was a lot, lot higher. Uh, We haven't seen it, I mean should Cambodians be braced for a massive Influx. I mean, a lot of it does have to do with COVID, but what do you, how do you, how do you see it unfolding on the ground going forward?
1: Well, we had over the course of 2019 and 2020 two large waves of exodus of People's Republic of China citizens uh, out of out of the kingdom. First of these, we saw in uh, August, September of 2019 uh, when online gambling was finally shut down, and no one really, uh, even analysts here on the ground, I think right. were completely shocked at the sheer scale of of that operation. Um, At looking at places such as Bavet and Sihanoukville, where you couldn't get a flight out of Cambodia to Mm. to China Mm -hmm. uh, for weeks, uh, seeing entire convoys of folks driving from uh, the provincial city of Bavet near Vietnam to Phnom Penh to fly out. Um, That was our first round. And then, of course, we also saw uh, the departures as COVID uh, began. Uh, So at this stage, although it's possible to come back in the kingdom, it appeared that uh, with revised business visas a few months ago, that this was designed especially to see uh, Mm -hmm. Chinese investors return. Uh, but of course now with uh, Cambodia's changed entry policy for mandatory two-week quarantine for everyone uh, these folks uh, simply aren't coming back everyone's everyone's waiting and holding out but we shouldn't think of this as some sort of fundamental shift this is definitely probably best viewed as a, as a short-term uh, blip uh, that is Increasingly, just simply dependent upon the COVID-19 situation.
0: Right, and uh, the Chinese embassy earlier this week announced that it's telling its citizens not to gamble in Cambodia, uh, which would be a hell of a blow for the economy or the planned economy and what they've been... The, the infrastructure projects and what they're building in uh, particularly down south
1: in Sienaville Sienaville was 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 framed as it was supposed to be uh, Cambodia's version of Shenzhen mm-hmm. uh, and even when that shifted to all right this is going to be more tourism focused uh, it remained I mean gambling 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 uh, even though we're yeah. beginning to see the city build out it doesn't it doesn't feel as much uh, like simply an entire construction site. Uh, at this point. We're seeing some projects finish. Um, if, you don't have, if you don't have Chinese citizens coming to Cambodia to gamble, uh, that really makes Scenicville uh, an enormous white elephant.
0: Particularly when there's a ban on Khmer's Cambodia's gambling in their own casinos.
1: This is going, uh, we, we still have the border casinos, which are many Vietnamese frequent, uh, but if, if, if we don't have the Chinese coming in, uh, then the question really becomes Scenicville uh, has been fundamentally altered, right. uh, and what's the future of it? Um, where is that? Uh, Cambodia does not have a huge amount of beach front, of beach. Fr- of, of beach uh, right. uh, to And yeah, the and coastline's uh, quite small. Precisely. And, and, and Sienicville has become a place where two other groups simply don't go anymore. Uh, Khmers increasingly do not vacation in Sienaqueville. They go to Kampot or to Kep, mm-hmm. uh, where, where uh, foreign tourists, particularly the sort of uh, up, the eventual return of the sort of upper middle income, upper income family of four from Europe, which is the sort of idealized. Uh, high-spending
0: tourists,
1: those folks aren't going to Ciannookville.
0: How indicative is uh, Ciannookville in terms of the whole Belt and Road initiative in that it's basically stopped. I mean, there's enormous numbers of empty skyscrapers, skeletons, half-built buildings, that kind of thing. But uh, there's been this enormous backlash around the planet to the Chinese, what they've been doing in countries from Sri Lanka to Africa to, to Fiji. Is the Belt and Road initiative, is that starting to see some serious stumbling blocks uh, particularly in terms of China's grand plan of um, being a global power?
1: Everybody who's looking at BRI, uh, regardless of whether they're in favour of it or they oppose it or take a a completely neutral position, Mm. uh, has recognised that the spending has slowed. The lending has significantly slowed down. On the one side, I think the most extreme answer uh, the most extreme approach I said uh, or I read was by a colleague who claimed that China uh, was simply slowing down investment because there wasn't any more need for large-scale infrastructure investment, right. um, which, uh, as apologetics go, was uh, about, as, about as extreme as you can get. A more realistic, I think, answer is Beijing has looked at and has, has uh, suffered significantly from the fact that so many of these projects uh, were mismanaged. Um, and it was very unclear as to what precisely counted as a Belt and Road Initiative project. Right. Um, there was no central list. One of the interesting things about their most recent white paper is we do have Uh, Numbers at least, Uh, and and it's much clearer in terms of Mm -hmm. what is officially Belt and Road uh, and what is not. Uh, But when we look at Scenicville and we see huge uh, buildings opening up and every third real estate firm saying we're building the BRI towers, we're part of BRI, uh, which of course they weren't, um, but everyone jumped on the bandwagon of this this huge initiative. Um, So Scenicville became really the image of sort of BRI gone wrong. Um, not entirely because of the question of, of, of the specific aid that China provided for the construction of the port, uh, but rather uh, the sheer uh, influx of investment and construction and individuals that the city itself and local governance uh, were simply not able to keep up with. Yeah, they
0: struggled uh, to cope enormously. Right. Uh, in, in the white paper itself, uh, you were just saying that there seemed to be a bit more clarity on the numbers. What was my, what did you find most telling? About the paper,
1: the most interesting aspect was the uh, was was the repetition, and but the mm. repetition in in a somewhat uh, frank manner of saying, yes, the future of BRI is better quality infrastructure with really frank statements about improving uh, environmental standards, improving monitoring and evaluation, improving um, poverty assessment and really beginning to take on board the mainstream concepts, at least stating that they're taking on board uh, the mainstream concepts utilized in development. At the same time, it's also framed very much as being consistent with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, right. Here, here in Phnom Penh, we just had the—I uh, believe it was yesterday or Thursday—the um, country representative for the United Nations Development Program made a very strong statement um, supporting China's aid and assistance as being fundamentally consistent with uh, with uh, with uh, with UN with, uh, with the with the SDGs. Right. Uh, so uh, China's said, "Okay, we're on board. We're going to be doing this. We're going to be making these reforms." At the same time, however, it highlights that it's been engaging in training and capacity building of mm-hmm. local officials to do better on implementation, on supporting environment, et cetera. But you have to start asking, if China itself admits that it has failed to adhere to these standards, how is it training local officials over the last two or three years to do what China itself has been unable to do? Um, China seems to need the training itself uh, rather than to be going out and telling folks how to do development better when it just issued a paper saying, hey, we promise it's not going to be as bad as we move forward. We're working on it.
0: Okay. In terms of military strategy, the South China Sea, uh, there's, there's a lot of noise coming out of Washington in the final days of the Trump administration. Uh, I think most people suspect that will continue under Biden. The, the BRI seems to be inextricably linked to uh, military strategy is that just something that's being conjured up by the West or is it something that's very real that's coming out of China
1: well you have I mean we think of here in Southeast Asia we always think in, in our in our own regional context obviously and we are mm. the sort of a test lab for a lot of what of what China does mm-hmm. um, we've seen it through the lansong Mekong cooperation mechanism which to be fair has been uh, much better implemented and much more consistent and predictable uh, than BRI funding I think that has to be recognized it oh. also was really the first place where we saw China expand into areas, education, etc., that it was not normally known for participating in. Um, but BRI globally, particularly when we look at the new Silk Road, we look at the connections through Central Asia and Russia uh, building out those links, um, at the end of the day there is of course a security aspect to it. Um, there is one one country that maintains naval supremacy in the South China Sea, and that country is the United States. Right. Uh, and that is the case for the foreseeable future. Uh, and I And although China has been investing and has been building up its military and its naval capacity for quite some time working towards a blue water navy. Even Beijing's own estimates are that it wouldn't really achieve parity with the U.S. till 2035. And the U.S. side has basically said, well, we don't even think that's remotely feasible till 2049. And here's another 64 new ships and continuing pivot mm-hmm. to the Pacific. Right. Um, so China's issue, of course, is that if, if, if the U.S. controls the South China Sea, um, the fundamental issue is the U.S. can blockade China. China needs particularly those land links through Central Asia yes, and yeah, the. Old,
0: um um, string of pearls strategy, we used to call it 20 years ago. And
1: yeah, you know, we have the, we have the, we've got on the naval <coughs> side string of pearls, and we've got the, and, uh, and we've got the new, uh, the new Silk Road, and of course all of this connecting to a whole series of economic corridors right. uh, to facilitate uh, greater Chinese
0: integration uh, with all of its neighbors. Mm-hmm. And of course with COVID, this is all just basically falling apart. Things have COVID has
1: COVID has has slowed things down considerably by China to Uh, the fact that it was running before it could walk in terms of aid policy. Uh, Of course, we uh, have gone through for the last few years the questions of debt traps. We've gone through the Sri Lanka port debacle uh, and we've seen uh, other problems. But just uh, earlier this month, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi was doing his tour of Africa and signed up Botswana and the Democratic Republic of Congo as new members of BRI. So it it does continue, Um, although there is uh, the, the the COVID issue is inherently going to slow uh, anything uh, because you're simply not getting uh, the ability to move. We're and, having we're having cha- and we're looking at a completely different supply chain world um, right. after this is over.
0: Taking it back to where we started, sure. actually, it's uh, uh, the foreign minister's trip to uh, Myanmar, Philippines and uh, the whole vaccine diplomacy. Uh, it's quite remarkable. I mean, the. The Chinese vaccines don't have the efficiency rate that uh, other vaccines are coming out with. The rollout seems to be Pushing and pushing ahead anyway, almost like it's taking up the steam that uh, BRI left behind.
1: It does. It it has become a competition. I mean, I think it's inevitably going to simply increase as a competition as China attempts to build goodwill and basically saying we are going to give X amount of the Sinopharm vaccine, etc., to countries free of charge. Here in Cambodia, we've Mm -hmm. already just about a week week and a half ago, we had the announcement that Cambodia would give or China would give Cambodia one million doses. Uh, of this vaccine, but the efficacy rate is much lower. Uh, And we've seen numbers uh, across a wide variety of countries of of, of different trials. Um, I think the lowest we saw was around a 52% efficacy rate in in Brazil. Uh, Now I'm a political economist uh, rather than an epidemiologist. Uh, or, a, or, a, or a virologist, mm-hmm. uh, but, there, but there does seem to be at least some degree of consensus that um, the efficacies of the different vaccines are quite, quite extensive, uh, that there is, there is a gap there. Uh, but at the same time, we've also seen countries in the global south. We saw South Africa just this week uh, saying there is a huge gap Uh, between the uh, higher developed OECD states and less developed countries. Uh, And at that stage, China is really responding to um, a very significant demand. Uh, We're starting to see estimates come out already as to when certain countries will have their vaccinations completed, um, if all goes to plan. And of course, we know with COVID so far, nothing has gone to plan. Uh, But uh, the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, looking at late July, early August, Um, to have herd immunity, assuming that things uh, vaccination rates continue at the at the upward pace they're climbing. Mm -hmm. Um, But for other less developed countries, people are looking at late 2022, uh, even in some cases seeing numbers 2023. Um, So there is a huge demand as vaccinations massively speed up uh, for uh, for the for the for a vaccine, even if it happens to be one. So
0: it's it's also a lot easier for China to um Sound generous. I mean, a lot of this is uh, a battle for perceptions and mm. it's, it's public relations to a point. Uh, but it's very easy for the Chinese to be generous when uh, Britain and the United States have, uh, are enduring some of the greatest uh, outbreaks of the commu- uh, as a community disease with COVID-19 that they have in the last few months. I mean, it's very and the elections. That's what, I mean, the China the Chinese are actually they're they're in a good spot.
1: Comparatively speaking, relatively
0: yes. Um, the U.S. is in this and with the new
1: Biden administration, mm-hmm. uh, and everyone's wondering, well, wh- what is the new Biden administration's approach going to be towards Southeast Asia, et cetera, uh, towards Africa, towards wherever? And the, and the reality is, everyone's going to have to wait. Right. Um, the U.S. requires. A hundreds and hundreds of political appointments to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And at this point in time, Washington is entirely focused on COVID right. uh, and, and COVID mitigation. China has had some, some, uh, consistent, some new outbreaks, some new local outbreaks across the country, but relatively small. And the GDP growth numbers we're seeing out of China shows very strong recovery. Uh, and that this is moving forward quite, uh, quite, quite positively. Um, so China is in a position where it's able to uh, take advantage of that. Uh, where the U.S. and the U.K. in particular, and now really all of Europe uh, and Australia are Mm -hmm. essentially focusing on what's going on back home. Their governments know um, that, yeah, there is massive anti-China sentiment increasingly in the West, uh, but the the, the voting issue is going to be COVID, especially as people spend day after day after day in lockdown.
0: Indeed. Now, taking it back again, in a post-COVID world, if that's possible to imagine, as you were saying earlier the whole BRI is going to change supply chains going forward how do you see that evolving particularly uh, partic- the supply chains themselves uh, around the region and the the different economic zones that were opening up
1: well we're seeing with with the, with with uh, particularly here in southeast asia what we have seen is Uh, the level of infrastructure development has been quite significant and no one can deny that there has been an infrastructure funding gap. Um, At the same time, uh, the trade war really indicated to uh, suppliers, to firms, etc. that relying entirely on China is simply not the best idea, Uh, that this is uh, looking at the implications. the from the trump trade war Um, and now with uh, the new rcep agreement and Mm -hmm. the idea of okay well if you want to produce for china you can produce in southeast asia and 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 do those exports Uh, but one thing we're going that is quite also positive i think for southeast asia um, is while the biden administration is certainly going to avoid the tactics of the trump administration uh, we're not seeing uh, any sort of this is a return to a the sort of almost fantasy-like uh, status quo ante that uh, people view the Obama administration as as mm. a, with regard to China relations. It's vital to recognize that the Asia pivot took place during the Obama administration. Sure, um, it was a this, bit late. It was it was late, but it was there, and it's and and we're, we've seen a generational change in a lot of the personnel who serve in the in career government who have a much more negative view of China than their predecessors, um, even in the field of China. Studies uh, we've seen we've seen something of a generational shift. Mm-hmm. Um, so post uh, the, the, the 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 implications of all of this for Southeast Asia on the United States is it's still going to be highly incentivized as a place to put your production as right. opposed as opposed to China. This should continue uh, the the benefits for countries that we've seen, especially places like Vietnam.
0: Well, where, it's funny I was just going to uh, suggest that who, who who will win the uh, trade war between China and the United States? Or, Vietnam Vietnam and Mexico.
1: (laughs) Vietnam and Mexico. It's been a great, great couple of years.
0: Right. (laughs)
1: and i think at the yeah. same at the same time this week we've seen the and the question is everyone's oh is this time the us will reengage with china etc we saw the statement from the white house press secretary saying this is we see china this is a fundamental issue of strategic competition beijing attempted to frame its its approach to the united states as, as extending an olive branch uh, making a rather undiplomatic statement of of we hope that the us will learn from the errors of the trump uh, trump policy um, of course spoken by the uh, spokesperson from the Chinese Foreign Ministry, who's really become uh, a figure of widespread uh, unpopularity uh, among uh, among many folks, um, and this, of course, didn't go well. The new U.S. Trade Representative has basically said, "Hey, this is not over, uh, and we are going to be moving forward." Uh, with uh, protecting intellectual property and so on and so forth now the u s would do that globally mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's the the trump tactics are over, but the u s approach to China has fundamentally shifted we're not in an era of Full containment. I I always like to use the term that uh, was was, was coined a couple of years ago by someone of where it's a it's a mix. It's the U.S. is it's a mix of containment and engagement. It is con engagement, where previously, uh, since really China's WTO entry, the U.S. was in a full engagement mode, Uh, but increasingly there is. A, the widespread view in the United States, obviously, there there are divisions, uh, but that, that that model failed. That was that uh, was wh- wh- much, I, oh, much overly optimistic.
0: And might. Uh, I don't want to sound. Uh, I don't, I certainly don't want to sound too nasty, but was it a mistake to uh, let China into the WTO? I think at the time,
1: and this goes to what This goes to sort of how China had framed itself, and in the 90s, China constantly framed itself as as a responsible power. Talking about China's peaceful rise, mm-hmm. and China had c- continued legacy goodwill. Um, remember, as 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 a U.S. and Western ally against the Soviet Union, despite the events of Tiananmen Square, um, Tiananmen '89, and that halted economic reform, which then re uh, begins in 1993, uh, and we see, all right, uh, this 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 uh, this idea, this this very post-war um, naive optimism, that. Everyone following Francis Fukuyama's famous book *The End of History* that the that the time had come. Every country was simply going to become a liberal democracy and engage in market capitalism, and that was the end. And this was this was the belief system that was held. Giving hand in hand off into the sunset. Exactly, and and everyone just sort of and you could sort of in a post-Cold War context after after decades of fear of nuclear annihilation. I mean, one can one can forgive some folks for being overly optimistic, um, but it was of course Bill Clinton at the WTO signing uh, when 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 China was brought in, uh, who said that, oh, China's values will come closer to America's values. And obviously, in a state that is engaged in certain policies in Xinjiang, that's developed a, uh, a, a remarkably unique hybrid uh, of neo-totalitarianism taking state control to levels that have never been seen simply because of the lack of technological feasibility. And I believe that it it fits the technical definition. We hear the word fascism very Mm. often these days. We hear it applied to Western politicians that that we don't like. Um, But look, there is a technical literature on what fascism is. And China's approach towards its ethnic minority groups, this position of just perpetual forcing of China's minority groups into you will speak Chinese, you will be you will be Chinese, etc. You will forego mm-hmm. religion, you will forego traditional language. And of course, we saw this with the Uyghurs for decades right. in Xinjiang. And of course, we've seen it for decades in Tibet as well. One of the most remarkable warning signs last year was when we began to see this applied to the ethnic Korean population in the northeast of China. Now, tell uh, me which, a bit more about that. Uh, th- this population uh, in the provinces of Liaoning and Jilin, uh, along the border with North Korea, traditionally, I mean, have been there for centuries, uh, and no longer use of Korean language. It's, it's time to switch out of using Korean, it's time to get to Mandarin. We see a similar approach to the, uh, the, popul- the Mongol population of Inner Mongolia, and neither of these groups are remotely a security no, rem- threat.
0: Remember um, 20 years ago, if you traveled to uh, Guangdong, and uh, from Shenzhen to Guangdong they all still spoke Cantonese Mm. and that's all gone now There's a lot happening in Hong Kong, but the Cantonese are very protective of their language.
1: You start wondering what the future of Hong Kong is going to be. I mean, when when, uh, London announced uh, earlier this week that uh, there are two points, I think the total is something like five, uh, over five million people uh, in Hong Kong who qualify or are dependents of those who qualify for British national overseas passports, which London said, Congratulations, that means five years of residency in Britain and, a British, and mm-hmm. eventually British citizenship. I mean, there's only 7 million or so people in Hong Kong. That's
0: right. And that, uh,
1: what is what is Hong Kong without those without those 5 million people? It's simply another Shanghai.
0: And they're quite wealthy.
1: Very much so. It's a huge, huge boon to the United Kingdom to bring those right. folks in.
0: And I, I noticed uh, yesterday that the... Um, Beijing has said it's not going to rec- recognize the uh, special British passports, the BNOs that were issued uh, back in 97.
1: Oh, they have they have announced it, and it's a question of, of what is London going to do next, what are the actual procedures of, okay, you don't recognize that, but if you still, uh, BNO passport holders also generally have Hong Kong special administrative right, Beijing, and, Well, they begin to require oh, exit visas.
0: And, that's right. um, there's, a, there's a huge amount that Beijing can do. I just can't remember where countries were told we're not going to recognize your passport, albeit that Hong Kong is not a country, mm. but uh, still, I mean, it seems quite extreme.
1: China's at this stage has clearly moved moved in a position where it's there is there is no time for the UK-China mm. treaty on Hong Kong handover. I mean, that's been blown out of
0: the water. No, they broke it.
1: And, and, and Britain's okay. been completely correct in stating that, okay, we're going to do this because we feel that the treaty commitments you made have not mm. been respected. Uh, but no, in, in, in in the post-Cold Warrior, I can't think of a context uh, where where we've seen something like this happen. Um, this is this is really a, 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 a bold step by China. Um, and Beijing doesn't seem to, Uh, be fully cognizant of the consequences, despite, uh, I mean, there's a ton of smart folks who work at the State Council, who work at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, very well-trained experts, and I would assume are are sort of quietly screaming, knowing that these actions are killing China's already very limited soft power. China is not a state um,
0: except for money um, that really draws in foreigners. On that note, and we're starting to run out of time, mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, has China taken on too much you know, in the sense that you know, the Middle Kingdom, the way it sees itself uh, from a cartographer's perspective, uh, North, South, East and West, uh, we're in the South, we're South of China in Cambodia, but we're seeing similar ramifications from their influence. So uh, the North, East, West, uh, have they taken on too much?
1: I think BRI is the, is the perfect example of China taking on too much. Uh, that we saw some shifts uh, during the period of President Hu Jintao uh, and then uh, really extreme changes in in Chinese Mm -hmm. foreign policy under Xi Jinping. And under President Xi, he, he, uh, he famously ignored Deng Xiaoping's advice of bide your time, wait, uh, and decided now is the time that China was ready to take on this huge role and that China could do BRI, that China could finally find its place in the sun under his, under his leadership. Um, unfortunately for President Xi, um, he was about a decade too early. Um, And made some very significant mistakes that have resulted in the much uh, massive pushback and looking at relationships that just a year to two years ago, we could not have possibly expected would be where they are looking at the quad, for example, the minilateral group of countries, uh, Japan, the United States. Uh, India and Australia, uh, and and consolidating heavily Indian and Australian opposition
0: um, That's quite stunning. And with so, Indonesia, as so well. quickly.
1: Two years ago, you'd yeah. be at a conference, and 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 we would have we we hear folks, our colleagues from Australia and from India, who would always be very measured in their tone with regard to China. That period is officially over. Uh, and it's 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 shocking to see the missteps uh, in my view the biggest one of course is mm. I mean BRI is is, is, is sort of is, 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 is a clear case um, but uh, nothing really beats for the for the biggest political error uh, of the last uh, decade, really, okay. is the conflict with India.
0: And finally, uh, where does that leave Cambodia and the smaller countries of the region? Well particularly Cambodia? It's a great example of a small regional country that's struggling but has improved over the years.
1: Uh, C- Cambodia has grown and is developed by leaps and bounds. I mean we've we've uh, you and I have both spent decades in in Cambodia, yeah. and it's a different planet in terms of its development levels. It's, it can't be denied that Cambodia has been a success. Uh, in the in across so many indicators, uh, the Millennium Development Goals and so on, uh, and now the SDGs. Um, at the same time, Cambodia uh, is lean has leaned heavily towards one side. Uh, while there's an official view uh, of of multilateralism and working with all, um, it's it's the overwhelming view is that Cambodia is. China's primary ally in Southeast Asia is. Um, the question really is: is, has Cambodia gone so far that it can't be brought back to a safer, multilateral, fully engaging policy, not leaning too heavily to one side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a question that we're going to see the answer to in, in the next couple of years, dependent on a wide variety of factors. I think one of the most important that we'll see as the Chinese population returns to Cambodia um, is the development of Cambodian nationalism, uh, which increasingly, as I've argued in other places, um, is increasingly defined against China as the other against with right. which Cambodian identities defined where historically it was Vietnam and Thailand, now it's China. Uh, things have tamped down in terms of anti Chinese sentiment because the Chinese sort of to bookend and go back to where we began simply aren't here right now. But should we see the flood and return again, there's some challenges there. And how that's dealt with is going to really be definitive as to where Cambodia heads.
0: And on that note, Bradley Moog, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Lou.